Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stable and in good spirits, Prime Minister Johnson receiving oxygen and remains in intensive care. The recovery, China prepares to reopen Wuhan and reports no coronavirus-related deaths today. And a state of emergency, Japan restricting activities in seven prefectures, including Tokyo. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Once again to first move, I want to get you straight to one of our top stories this hour. As I mentioned, the British Prime Minister remains in a stable condition in hospital, though in the intensive care unit, as he fights the coronavirus. According to an update given by his spokesman just a short time ago, he said to be in good spirits. Max Foster joins us now from outside Parliament in London. I think anyone who knows anything about the British Prime Minister knows good spirits is something very intrinsic to him. But what more do we know? about his condition, Max, and obviously we know he remains in intensive care at this moment. Yeah, so we're looking for signs that um, either he's getting better or he's getting worse. And there aren't signs that he's getting particularly worse from where he was last night. So he's received standard oxygen treatment, we're told. He's breathing without ventilation, crucially, or non-invasive respiratory support. So when he gets onto those, that's when we start getting more concerned. And there's been no diagnosis, diagnosis of pneumonia either, uh, Julia. So uh, that's the update. Uh, on him, you know, as a man, his health. Uh, there's a, the wider issue about how all this is being communicated because obviously we're asking endlessly for updates. The public wants updates. It is the leader of the country after all. Uh, but it seems as though the, 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 you know, the essential information about how he's doing is being very closely guarded by a close group of people. Listen to what Michael Gove had to say. He's a very senior cabinet minister, very close uh, to Boris Johnson. And even he wasn't aware about uh, the move to ICU until, uh, you know, just after it happened. Was the government levelling with the nation at those briefings, telling them what the situation was, uh, and, and was it uh, as taken by surprise? Yes, we were. We were informed subsequently. Um, uh, the Prime Minister was admitted to intensive care at 7 o'clock, um, and that information wasn't uh, 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 given to to us in government, to those in the cabinet, um, until just before eight o'clock. So they are trying to balance things, aren't they, Julia? They don't want to freak everyone out by saying too much, perhaps. And they also want to guard, uh, obviously, Boris Johnson's privacy. Uh, and they also want to show that he's in control. So they're making very clear that he is still the prime minister. I mean, this is the key, I think, as well. It's that balance of privacy for an individual versus the public's right to know when the leader of the nation is, is unwell at this stage. One of my considerations is how much say he has as an individual, how long he can remain at home versus being in hospital and can perhaps push back on, on medical advice. But Max, to your point there, who is in charge and under what conditions? 
Well, this is the United Kingdom, Julia, and mm. we sort of fumble our way through these things, as you know, without a written constitution. There is no set pattern uh, for uh, how uh, the prime ministership is passed on if the prime minister becomes incapacitated. So we've been asking lots of questions about this. And there is a slight issue here in that we're being told that Boris Johnson is still in charge as prime minister, but we're hearing that Dominic Raad, the most senior minister in the cabinet, uh, is, taking, is representing him, taking on responsibilities when necessary. So two people are in charge, which is never useful for leadership in a crisis. Uh, but we've had a, a slight update on what Dominic Raab will be able to do. This is from uh, the spokesperson for the Prime Minister. He does have the uh, authority with the Cabinet to, re to respond to an attack on the UK, for example, but he can't hire and fire ministers. Uh, he will not be having weekly audiences with the Queen that Boris Johnson normally has, and they've also come up with a succession plan for him. So the, the Chancellor will take over from Dominic Raab if he becomes incapacitated. Uh, of course, none of this is really tested until Dominic Raab is in a prime ministerial role and tests it. So we don't know how this is going to play out. It might be that the Downing Street spokesperson says one thing. It might mean that something completely different actually happens. Uh, uncharted territory. Uncharted territory indeed. And certainly the messaging here over the last 36 hours has been, um, let's say, confusing, to say the least, I think, Max. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Max Foster in London. Now, we wish the Prime Minister and his family, of course, the very best and all those affected by the virus, including those looking after others around the world. The Prime Minister's case, though, a stark reminder that hundreds of thousands of people continue to battle with this virus, even as optimism grows that the curve of cases may be flattening in some areas. It doesn't mean that infections are declining, just that they're not rising at their previous rate. That said, US futures are rallying for a second day on hopes that Italy and Germany and perhaps New York too are seeing cases steadying. This follows a sharp rise Monday of more than 7% for US markets. European stocks also reflecting, I think, one, a bounce from low levels, but also a degree of optimism. Similar story in Asia, too. I want to hone in on South Korean stocks because they have now rallied more than 20% above their most recent lows, along with stocks in the Philippines and India. South Korea to me as an example of the expanded testing capabilities that we keep discussing here on First Move. But we can't set aside the fiscal, the monetary measures that we've seen launched around the world to support state economies and also remain key here. In that vein, EU finance ministers currently discussing a cross-border aid package. And in the United States, President Trump says he's considering further direct payments to individuals. We need to see the first lot come through first, but it, of course, remains a balance between measures to protect lives while working out the best way to reopen and find some semblance of normality in the future. And for that, we look to China. The country seemingly hit a significant milestone in its recovery. On Monday, the country reported no new deaths from COVID-19 for the first time since the outbreak began. David Culver is in Shanghai for us. David, always great to get you on the show. That feels like a significant milestone, but also now timing on the reopening of Wuhan. What more do we know? Hey, Julia, good to be with you. Always important to put this in context here. Of mm. course, our source for these numbers, the National Health Commission, the Chinese government, they're always met with heavy skepticism, uh, not only around the world, but also by some here in China. And you, and you see that as folks are still hesitant to fully partake in, in life as it once was. 
that said, we have been recently seeing crowds of people coming together, jam-packed, and in many cases kind of letting their guards down, it seems, uh, to rejoin life as it was in some sense. Um, but you, you look at what's coming ahead here, and we've got now in just really three hours uh, the reopening, if you will, of Wuhan, the original epicenter of all of this. And you talk about that delicate balance between maintaining control of the spread of this virus, trying to keep it from growing uh, further out of control, and at the same time trying to reopen businesses. Well, case in point there is Wuhan. And, and they're starting in the next few hours to then lift the travel restrictions. And why that is important is because you're essentially allowing the folks who may have been trapped there, if you will, during the lockdown a little more than two months ago, to finally leave by train or by highway or by air. And so it's not going to necessarily be opening the floodgates within because a lot of people I've spoken with in Wuhan aren't necessarily going to be leaving their homes, in fact. Some may be continuing to go out to do their daily necessity shopping and then getting back in place. This will be those who perhaps were even migrant workers who were there and will be able to finally get back to the factories. And that'll help in kind of reboosting the economy to some extent here, too. But all of this kind of put with the, the concern and really the cautious optimism that maybe there will be another wave if people continue to move around as freely as we have seen in recent days. It was quite unsettling, actually, to be even in the midst of some of those crowds, Julia, and to think, you know, you've got asymptomatic cases still about, and you've got these imported cases that the government keeps warning about. You wonder, is it all just becoming a little bit too loose, if you will? That's exactly the question that I was going to ask you, and I, I want to be optimistic about reopening economies, not yeah. just China, of course, but around the world. And we, on, on First Move, keep coming back to this idea of testing, whether it's antibody testing for people that were asymptomatic, but also just testing for people that still have it or may have it and not be showing symptoms again. David, what kind of testing is going on in China to allow all those people to be safely crammed together at a tourist attraction. What are you seeing and hearing? Yeah, it's it's a really important point here because if you go back even to the early days of how China was handling this, and obviously we've been covering it since the before the lockdown, and they had on average some 200 tests available a day in the city of Wuhan. 200 tests. Of course, they had to ramp up production, and they did, and that's when the central government took over. We're now hearing that testing capabilities are somewhere around 340,000 a day, if not more at this point. They've been stockpiling a good number of them. So they certainly have the capacity, and they have been using that testing quite willingly to, to any foreigner who comes into the country, and they have blocked nearly every foreigner at this point. But those who had come in, even up until that ban went into effect, every single one had to undergo tests and they were put into hours upon hours of screening and had to get a negative test or if they were positive were put into quarantine uh, before being able to freely move about. So testing is certainly, you know, the capacity is here, they've got it, uh, but it still doesn't make it necessarily feel all that comfortable even if somebody, you know, were to test uh, positive or negative, you know, to, to know that there's still the numbers of people shoulder to shoulder, I mean, forget six feet apart or the one and a half meter rule. It's just not happening here at this point. And, and I think there may be a point where we start to see a reversal of some of the freedoms, the phased freedoms, and they start to ease that back once again. I mean, we saw that, Julia, just over the past week where they had allowed movie theaters to open back up. 
they closed those down. Karaoke bars were allowed to open within a few hours. They shut them back down. State media even saying some people were mid-song as they were shutting them back down. So they don't have that concern as far as going back on, on, on their word, if you will, and letting the, the freedoms take place because this seems in many ways to be testing the waters. Yeah, absolutely. And the rest of the world avidly watching what that reopening looks yeah. like, however staggered and reversals key here too. David, great to have you with us. David Carver there in Shanghai. Now, the Prime Minister of Japan has declared a month-long state of emergency as new infections there surge. Cases in Tokyo more than doubled last week. Some say the emergency measures have come too late. Will Ripley is in the capital for us. Well, seven prefectures, including Tokyo, I believe, that have these restricted movement measures. What does that mean in practice? And can you give us some context on the number of cases? What are we talking about here? It's striking, Julia, just listening to David's report from China and how they can just immediately pull back people's freedom. And yet it's the opposite situation here in Japan. This state of emergency is nothing but a very strongly worded request from the Japanese government for people to stay home, for offices to reduce their capacity by 70 or 80 percent. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe did come out uh, a couple of hours ago with his strongest statement yet in terms of the risk that Tokyo and Osaka and all of the other prefectures, the seven prefectures in Japan affected by this face if they do not comply with this state of emergency. He said that the numbers in Tokyo, which right now stand officially at 1,200, I've talked with epidemiologists who say it could be significantly higher than that because of Japan's limited testing. But the official number, 1,200, Shinzo Abe saying in two weeks, if nothing is done, 10,000 cases easily here in Tokyo in a month, 80,000 cases easily. And this is a country uh, uh, and a city that, uh, you know, is hoping to maybe have 4,000 beds for coronavirus patients eventually. They're aiming to have 1,700 beds by the end of this week. They have a shortage of ICU beds. So 80,000 cases here in Tokyo would be absolutely catastrophic. And that's what Shinzo Abe is saying will happen if people do not basically do what the rest of the world is doing, but do it voluntarily. He needs mm -hmm. to basically cut human contact here by 70 to 80 percent for this to work. He says this is the biggest crisis, Julia, that Japan has faced since World War II. And for many, most nations around the world too, well, it may be voluntary, we may be asking politely, but for your own health, follow it and stay at home. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Will Ripley. Right now here in the United States, President Trump announcing a deal with 3M to address shortages of face masks. We have reached an agreement, very amicable agreement with 3M for the delivery of an additional 55.5 million high quality face masks, face masks each month. So the 3M saga ends very happily. So this comes after the White House invoked the Defense Production Act to prevent 3M from exporting masks abroad. Claire Sebastian has the details on this. Claire, what is the contours of this amicable deal, as the, the president suggested? My and our understanding from 3M was on a humanitarian grounds. They didn't want to stop sending masks to the likes of Canada and to Latin America because they were afraid that that would cost lives there, too. Yeah, that was 3M's big problem with this yeah. year when the, the president invoked the Defense Production Act late last week. Now, they say that they got some of what they want in this as well. And in, the, in their statement, 3M say... Uh 
to first move where U.S. stock markets are set to add to recent gains amid hopes that the COVID-19 caseloads in certain parts of Europe and even the United States may be peaking early days. That's uh, my cautious response. Oil. This morning as well, higher ahead of Thursday's expected OPEC meeting. The hope is that the world's biggest oil producers can agree to restrict output in some form or measure. Meanwhile, shares of cruise line firms sharply higher pre-market. Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund has taken an 8% stake in Carnival. Just for perspective here, and it's key, cruise line stocks are still down some 80% year-to-date. As investors wonder, I think, what recovery looks like for the tourism and the travel industry in the future and how long that takes. That question may rely in some part on the efforts of our next guest. Mayo Clinic has launched an antibody test looking at a person's immune response to the COVID-19 virus. It's crucial in helping determine whether a person has contracted the virus, even if the patient never showed symptoms. Dr. William Maurice is the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, and he joins us now. Dr. Maurice, we're very grateful for you making the time this morning. Just explain to us first what you've launched this week and why this is so pivotal. Well, Julia, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to to be with you this morning. Uh, The test that we're talking about is called a serologic test. It's a blood test that actually, as you said, measures for the presence of antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which, is, which will be present in the blood of individuals who have been ex- exposed to the virus and have mounted an immune response. How present, I think, is one of my first questions, because there's different levels of antibodies that appear in, the, in your system. How important is gauging what kind of immunology or immune response of bodies produced and how detailed is the test that you have at this moment and does that matter for getting people back out there and perhaps working well it certainly the test that we have is specific for the SARS-CoV-2 virus antibodies it measures a, a very specific type called IgG. Uh, This antibody appears in the blood probably one to two weeks after someone's been exposed to the virus um, and and had either if they've had symptoms, excuse me, or if they haven't had symptoms, they will have the virus present in their blood about one to two weeks later. what we know is that this virus, the antibodies to the virus do confer some level of an immune response. What we really have to understand is how protective is that immunity, how durable is that immunity, to answer the key questions about does having the antibody in your blood protect you and allow us to be safely back in society. How long is it going to take, in your mind, to establish that? Because if I, I go back to the SARS virus that we saw in 2002, I believe the immunity lasted somewhere between three and six years. Do we have any sense at this stage how long this immunity lasts or is it too early to tell? It's, it's far too early to tell. Mm-hmm. I know people are really anxious for answers, uh, but I think it's really important that from, as a medical community, we really have good scientific understanding of the virus itself and the body's response to it before we draw conclusions about what having the antibodies in the blood really means for an individual or for society as a whole. Uh, what we do know is that the, the antibodies, as I said, take about one to two weeks to appear in the blood, and that even after the antibodies appear, and you might even be asymptomatic when the antibodies appear because you're having an immune response, you can still be actually shedding the virus uh, and exposing others to, to COVID disease. Uh, so that's why it's really important that we continue to do molecular testing to identify those who, the molecular testing actually tests for the presence of the virus itself. 
as opposed to the serologic testing, which tests for the presence of antibodies in the blood. And it's really important that we do dope both here in this early period just to really understand the disease and the interplay between immunity and the virus itself. Uh, early studies suggest that the, having the antibodies is protective. Uh, from what we know of other coronaviruses, as you said, the immunity tends to last uh, two to three years at least. But these are things that we really need to understand. I think early on, as we have a limited supply of the tests in the early days, mm-hmm. it'll be really important to focus where we can use the testing to the best effect for the American people and for everybody around the world. Uh, really, the three m- main uses at this point are for healthcare workers to right. identify those who have been exposed and are potentially immune. Uh, those who can actually donate their plasma, if they have antibodies in their blood to the virus, they can actually donate plasma to be used to treat others who are ill with the disease. And then last but not least, as we get the vaccine therapies, which we're all anxiously awaiting, this can be used to measure the efficacy of some of those vaccination protocols. I feel like I'm going to go over old ground here, but I get a sense of when people look and listen to this interview, they'll be like, immunity. Is there still a risk that even if you have antibodies in your system, you could perhaps catch the virus again? Does that remain an unknown at this moment? I have to say that it does remain an unknown. Uh, we, it is more likely than not that having the antibodies will protect you from reinfection, or if you do get reinfected, that you would have much milder symptoms. Because really, what we're trying to avoid here is not so much the viral infection, but really the serious illness that the virus can cause in a subset of individuals. So, but we really need to learn uh, through further study exactly uh, what having the antibody in the blood does in terms of protecting the individual. A couple of questions. How long before we're confident that we can do these tests, get healthcare workers in particular back on the front lines because they have some kind of immunity? And the second part of that is, are you in favor of mass testing, whether that's mass testing for those that are currently suffering, maybe asymptomatic, but also mass testing for this kind of immunity too? Well, I think going back to the question of healthcare workers, I do mm. think it's really important that we have the testing available for those individuals who are in the front line fighting the fight against COVID disease, because those who have been exposed and have an immune response are going to be more likely to be protected from the virus itself. Uh, and over time, as we do molecular studies as well, we'll understand who needs to be using protective personal equipment and those things. Uh, there will be a role, I think, at some point to do the mass testing that you refer to. But right now, when the testing is still of limited supply, we have to ramp up production just like we have to for the molecular testing. It'll be really important that we use it responsibly to best really help manage the yeah. COVID crisis, which we're all dealing with. Yeah, we need as much money, I think, pumped into this as, uh, as anything else, quite frankly, to try and get us back to some degree of normality. Dr. William Maurice, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your time this morning, because I know you and your team are incredibly busy. Thank you. And stay in touch. Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you. Stay safe. All right, we're going to see the market open next. And of course, we'll bring you a further update on the health of the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Stay with us. I'm Max Foster in London, and this is CNN. Welcome back to First Move. We've got U.S. stocks up and running in this session Tuesday. As expected, a higher open, a continuation of Monday's sharp 7% gains. We're up more than 3%, as you can see, almost 4% right now for the Dow. 
context, the S&P 500 has risen around 20% from the lows we saw on March 23rd. Markets at this moment, investors seemingly encouraged by data showing COVID-19 cases leveling off in some areas of Europe and potentially in the United States too. But I can tell you what, the warnings from some of the analysts at major banks remains very cautious here. JP Morgan Chase saying, be clear, the markets are still not acting normally liquidity, which just means buyers and sellers and their willingness to exchange, still a big concern. UBS Wealth Management says it's too early to call a turn in the pandemic. It's warning of fresh volatility ahead. There is more talk, though, about simply how to open up economies if cases continue to flatten. The economic cost here great, too. An Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera, saying today that May 4th could be a target date there, but they will proceed in stages. That certainly will be the case elsewhere, I think, in the world, too, as we were talking about in China. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, bounces like this within bear markets happen. I remain cautious. Your view here. I think that caution is warranted. You're exactly mm-hmm. right, Julie. had a lot of bear market bounces in 2008 and early 2009, it didn't mean that the worst was over. And I think right now we have to unfortunately probably wait a couple of months until a year maybe to look back and say, maybe we did finally bottom in late March. But right now it's extremely premature to say that the worst is over for the markets because we have all these companies that are going to report dismal earnings for the first quarter. And they're probably not going to have great guidance if there's any guidance for the rest of the year because companies really don't have a lot of clarity about what's next. And the economic numbers are going to be gruesome. We already had the tip of the iceberg with the jobs report on Friday, and that's going to be just the start of awful jobs losses for several months in the United States. Yeah, the health crisis is one thing and getting that under control, but the fallout the economic crisis and underlying and how long that persists, to your point, businesses simply don't have clarity here of how long the shutdown will continue and what consumer behavior and how reticent they are even when we get the other side of this, which is key for many of these businesses. Yeah, I think the encouraging thing, if you want to call it that, is that it does seem that a lot of consumers are still spending from home. You have a company like Wayfair that yesterday reported extremely strong numbers. The stock surged. A lot of the hard-hit retailers are starting to rebound off of their lows. But companies you know, are only going to be able to do so much with digital shopping. There are many retailers that have huge physical footprints that aren't going to be able to keep their store, you know, employees working with stores closed. And then you Look at other parts of the consumer sector, like the restaurant business. And obviously, so many small restaurants are getting decimated right now. You might have some of the larger chains being able to hold up with delivery services via DoorDash and Grubhub. But you know, so many mom and pop smaller restaurants are going to be struggling, and that's going to mean more job losses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the government can't get this uh, small business loan and, of course, the individual payments to uh, people out to those in need soon enough. Paula Monica.
Thank you very much for that. All right, returning to our top story now. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains in a stable condition in hospital where he's being treated for coronavirus. His spokesman says he's in good spirits and breathing without assistance. The UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab is deputising for the Prime Minister and said this yesterday. The Prime Minister is in safe hands with a brilliant team uh, at St Thomas's Hospital and the focus of the government will continue to be on making sure at the Prime Minister's direction all the plans for making sure that we can defeat coronavirus and pull the country through this challenge will be taken forward. Joey Jones joins us now. He's former advisor to the previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, and is now strategic counsel at Zero Group, a communications and marketing research agency. Joey, always great to, to have you on. Obviously, our first thought is for the health of, of the Prime Minister, and we wish him a speedy recovery. But what's your sense of the messaging, the fact that the message on Sunday night was just routine tests, and now the developments over the last 24 hours? Um, I think there has been a, a feeling over the past few days that the government has been uh, guilty of a little bit of wishful thinking about the Prime Minister's condition, and probably partly that, that is down to him himself. He is a stubborn uh, man. He wants to be running the show uh, and quite plausibly found it difficult to confront the fact that he simply wasn't going to be able to do that. But it did mean that the communications were were behind the curve and that for, for a succession of days we were told that it was basically okay, that he was up in his flat self-isolating but, uh, but in charge. Then obviously he went into hospital and we were told that he continued to be uh, dictating uh, the, the policy within government, and yet his de, de facto deputy, Dominic Raab, himself said at the news conference yesterday afternoon that he hadn't spoken to him since uh, Saturday. Then again, of course, the, the, his situation uh, worsens. And there is a danger in this, because if each time uh, Downing Street looks as though it's viewing his condition through rose-tinted glasses, it does mean that, that we are entitled, or the, the public will be entitled to be somewhat sceptical about the messaging that, that is coming out right at the very uh, moment where they want to be as clear, they need to be as clear as possible. I couldn't agree more on that point about confidence and for the general population in the UK that's amidst a crisis, they're under lockdown, they're wondering what's happening now with, with their leader. Being clear and as clear as you can be about the situation with his health is essential. You've worked hand in hand with a prime minister. How able are they, to your point, not only to dict policy, but dictate policy, but also dictate the advice that they're getting from the medical advisors. We all watched that video uh, that he put out on social media at the end of last week and thought, this is a leader that doesn't look like he's in great health. No, I, I think at least that the, the medical and the behavioural advice has now settled. But there is a position that the, the government has imposed lockdown. The rules are, I think, well understood by the population. Uh, and there's no immediate likelihood that that is going to shift. Where there, was, where there have been problems uh, is around the communication of policy on, for example, uh, t the testing regime um, and persistent questions as to why more health staff, NHS staff, are not being uh, tested. And there, again, the government has, uh, has struggled. Uh, a succession of ministers uh, looked as though they, didn't, they weren't really well equipped to deal with those questions when they were giving the regular news conference last week. And the whole organisation looked somewhat uh, rudderless. So I think in policy terms, things for the time being have uh, have broadly plateaued. 
And, and that does mean that there's a, a breathing space, if you like, before some really challenging decisions about trying to alleviate the lockdown would have to be confronted uh, in, in, in the weeks ahead. So at least Boris Johnson's absence is during a time when the broad policy is well understood. But from a communications point of view, it's really difficult because the government does look rather ruddle. What do we need to know about Dominic Raab, who's now in a position under certain conditions, according to the communication, in charge of the country? And of course, the situation, if for some reason he's incapacitated, the next person in line, because without a constitution, these things are a grey area. Uh, yes, and I, I don't think he is very widely known, actually, by the by the British population. I was going to say, if you went out into the street and asked people, uh, of course, you wouldn't do that right at the moment. But uh, metaphorically, uh, if you were to do that, then I, I think a lot of people wouldn't know very much uh, about him. Frankly, he is entirely untested at this uh, at this level. He was made foreign secretary by, by Boris Johnson and uh, was starting to establish a bit of an imprint on the uh, on that area of foreign affairs. But this is. Uh, this is a test way beyond any that has previously confronted him. And it has to be a collective effort. In terms of the the, the morning's broadcast interviews, they were actually conducted by another more experienced senior, senior minister, Michael Gove. Uh, but the problem is that he is now self-isolating uh, as well because a member of his family has uh, shown symptoms of uh, COVID-19. So whichever way you look, there are challenges and many of them, as you say, crowding in on an individual who's never had to confront anything of this magnitude. No, it's the ongoing challenge of strategically running a country, the isolation issues, the communication issues. Um, in the end, we wish the Prime Minister well and a swift recovery. Joey Jones, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Strategic Council at Cicero Group. Thank you. We're going to take a break, but coming up next on First Move, what do you do with broken, damaged ventilators? Given they're so crucial at this moment, apparently you ask a green energy company to help and you get working ventilators in a matter of hours. We speak to the CEO of Bloom Energy to find out how. Hello and welcome back to First Move. We've got U.S. stocks up and running in this session Tuesday. As expected, a higher open, a continuation of Monday's sharp 7% gains. We're up more than 3%, as you can see, almost 4% right now for the Dow. Context, the S&P 500 has risen around 20% from the lows we saw on March 23rd. Markets at this moment, investors seemingly encouraged by data showing COVID-19 cases leveling off in some areas of Europe and potentially in the United States too. But I can tell you what, the warnings from some of the analysts at major banks remains very cautious here. JP Morgan Chase saying, be clear, the markets are still not acting normally liquidity, which just means buyers and sellers and their willingness to exchange, still a big concern. UBS Wealth Management says it's too early to call a turn in the pandemic. It's warning of fresh volatility ahead. There is more talk, though, about simply how to open up economies if cases continue to flatten. The economic cost here great, too. An Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera, saying today that May 4th could be a target date there, but they will proceed in stages. That certainly will be the case elsewhere, I think, in the world, too, as we were talking about in China. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, bounces like this within bear markets happen. I remain cautious. Your view here. 
I think that caution is warranted. You're exactly mm. right, Julie. Had a lot of bear market bounces in 2008 and early 2009. It didn't mean that the worst was over. And I think right now we have to unfortunately probably wait a couple of months until a year maybe to look back and say, maybe we did finally bottom in late March. But right now it's extremely premature to say that the worst is over for the markets because we have all these companies that are going to report dismal earnings for the first quarter. And they're probably not going to have great guidance if there's any guidance for the rest of the year because companies really don't have a lot of clarity about what's next. And the economic numbers are going to be gruesome. We already had the tip of the iceberg with the jobs report on Friday. And that's going to be just the start of awful jobs losses for several months in the United States. Yeah, the health crisis is one thing and getting that under control. But the fallout the economic crisis and underlying and how long that persists, to your point, businesses simply don't have clarity here of how long the shutdown will continue and what consumer behavior and how reticent they are even when we get the other side of this, which is key for many of these businesses. Yeah, I think the encouraging thing, if you want to call it that, is that it does seem that a lot of consumers are still spending from home. You have a company like Wayfair that yesterday reported extremely strong numbers. The stock surged. A lot of the hard-hit retailers are starting to rebound off of their lows. But companies you know, are only going to be able to do so much with digital shopping. There are many retailers that have huge physical footprints that aren't going to be able to keep their store, you know, employees working with stores closed. And then you Look at other parts of the consumer sector, like the restaurant business. And obviously, so many small restaurants are getting decimated right now. You might have some of the larger chains being able to hold up with delivery services via DoorDash and Grubhub. But you know, so many mom and pop smaller restaurants are going to be struggling, and that's going to mean more job losses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the government can't get this uh, small business loan and, of course, the individual payments to uh, people out to those in need soon enough. Paula Monica, thank you very much for that. All right, returning to our top story now. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains in a stable condition in hospital where he's being treated for coronavirus. His spokesman says he's in good spirits and breathing without assistance. The UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab is deputising for the Prime Minister and said this yesterday. The Prime Minister is in safe hands with a brilliant team uh, at St Thomas's Hospital and the focus of the government will continue to be on making sure at the Prime Minister's direction all the plans for making sure that we can defeat coronavirus and pull the country through this challenge will be taken forward. Joey Jones joins now. He's former advisor to the previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, and is now strategic counsel at Zero Group, a communications and marketing research agency. Joey, always great to, to have you on. Obviously, our first thought is for the health of, of the Prime Minister, and we wish him a speedy recovery. But what's your sense of the messaging, the fact that the message on Sunday night was just routine tests, and now the developments over the last 24 hours? Um, I think there has been a, a feeling over the past few days that the government has been uh, guilty of a little bit of wishful thinking about the Prime Minister's condition, and probably partly that, that is down to him himself. He is a stubborn uh, man. He wants to be running the show, uh, and quite 
plausibly found it difficult to confront the fact that he simply wasn't going to be able to do that. But it did mean that the communications were were behind the curve and that for, for a succession of days, we were told that it was basically OK, that he was up in his flat, self-isolating, but, uh, but in charge. Then, obviously, he went into hospital and we were told that he continued to be uh, dictating uh, the, the policy within government. And yet his de, de facto deputy, Dominic Raab, himself said at the news conference yesterday afternoon that he hadn't spoken to him since uh, Saturday. Then again, of course, the, the, his situation uh, worsens. And there is a danger in this, because if each time uh, Downing Street looks as though it's viewing his condition through rose-tinted glasses, it does mean that, that, that we are entitled, or the, the public will be entitled to be somewhat sceptical about the messaging that, that is coming out right at the very uh, moment where they want to be as clear, they need to be as clear as possible. I couldn't agree more on that point about confidence and for the general population in the UK that's amidst a crisis, they're under lockdown, they're wondering what's happening now with, with their leader, being clear and as clear as you can be about the situation with his health is essential. You've worked hand in hand with a prime minister. How able are they, to your point, not only to dict policy, but dictate policy, but also dictate the advice that they're getting from the medical advisors. We all watched that video uh, that he put out on social media at the end of last week and thought, this is a leader that doesn't look like he's in great health. No, I, I think at least that the, the medical and the behavioural advice has now settled. But there is a position that the, the government has imposed lockdown. The rules are, I think, well understood by the population. Uh, and there's no immediate likelihood that that is going to shift. Where there, was, where there have been problems uh, is around the communication of policy on, for example, uh, t the testing regime um, and persistent questions as to why more health staff, NHS staff, are not being uh, tested. And there, again, the government has, uh, has struggled. Uh, a succession of ministers uh, looked as though they, didn't, they weren't really well equipped to deal with those questions when they were giving the regular news conference last week. And the whole organisation looked somewhat uh, rudderless. So I think in policy terms, things for the time being have uh, have broadly plateaued. And, and that does mean that there's a, a breathing space, if you like, before some really challenging decisions about trying to alleviate the lockdown would have to be confronted uh, in, in, in the weeks ahead. So at least Boris Johnson's absence is during a time when the broad policy is well understood. But from a communications point of view, it's really difficult because the government does look rather rudderless. What do we need to know about Dominic Raab, who's now in a position under certain conditions, according to the communication, in charge of the country? And, of course, the situation, if for some reason he's incapacitated, the next person in line, because without a constitution, these things are a grey area. Uh, yes, and I don't think he is very widely known, actually, by the by the British population. I was going to say, if you went out into the street and asked people, uh, of course, you wouldn't do that right at the moment. But uh, metaphorically, uh, if you were to do that, then I, I think a lot of people wouldn't know very much uh, about him, frankly. He is entirely untested at this 
uh, at this level. He was made Foreign Secretary by, by Boris Johnson and uh, was starting to establish a bit of an imprint on the uh, on that area of foreign affairs. But this is a this is a, a test way beyond any that has uh, previously confronted him, and it has to be a collective effort. In terms of the the, the morning's uh, broadcast interviews, they were actually conducted by another more experienced senior senior minister, Michael Gove. Uh, but the problem is that he is now self-isolating uh, as well because a member of his family has uh, shown symptoms of uh, COVID-19. So whichever way you look, there are challenges and many of them, as you say, crowding in on an individual who's never had to confront anything of this magnitude. No, it's the ongoing challenge of strategically running a country, the isolation issues, the communication issues. Um, in the end, we wish the Prime Minister well and a swift recovery. Joey Jones, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Strategic Council at Cicero Group. Thank you. We're going to take a break. But coming up next on First Move, what do you do with broken, damaged ventilators? Given they're so crucial at this moment, apparently you ask a green energy company to help and you get working ventilators in a matter of hours. We speak to the CEO of Bloom Energy to find out how. News in the last few moments. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth, has sent a message of support to Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, who's still in intensive care, being treated for coronavirus. Her Majesty said the Prime Minister, his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, and the Johnson family were in her thoughts, and she wished him, wished him a full and speedy recovery. Number 10 says the Prime Minister is in a stable condition and in good spirits. His spokesman has been updating us about the continuity of leadership in the UK government too. Our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, is outside St Thomas's Hospital in London where the Prime Minister is being treated and joins us now. Clarissa, great to have you on the show. I think the British public, but beyond that, collectively held their breaths when this news broke. Do we just wait now? for updates on his health and, and the situation. I think that's exactly the situation the British public is in. They have no choice but to just wait. Um, but what they would like to see from many of the people I have spoken to is a little more substantive information being given in these updates. Because, as you said, people were really taken aback when the Prime Minister Boris Johnson was suddenly admitted to the ICU or ITU, as it's called here in the UK. There had been no indication whatsoever from down. Downing Street earlier on in the day uh, that he was in such bad health. In fact, they had said it was just a precautionary measure that he was even going to the hospital. He was having some tests. Uh, he was having persistent symptoms, but nothing that gave any indication um, that his health had really taken a turn for the worse beyond, of course, the obvious fact that he was in the hospital in the first place. Even his own cabinet, as we heard uh, from Michael Gove earlier today, was very surprised to learn at about 8 p.m., uh, which was just an hour after the fact that the prime minister had been moved into intensive care. We've heard some updates today, Julia. You basically already alluded to those. He's in stable condition. He's in good spirits. He has not been intubated or had any sort of invasive procedure or treatment to help him breathe. He is getting oxygen tra uh, treatment. They called it standard oxygen treatment. So one senses Downing Street is really trying 
trying uh, to continue in this sort of vein of really trying to downplay it and to calm people's fears. But I think actually what many Britons would like to hear right now is some sobering truth telling and giving them a real sense of what's actually going on, how sick he is, and what that means, of course, for uh, the leadership of this country, Julia. Yes, balancing the privacy of an individual with the leadership that the nation needs at this moment. Great to have you with us, Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward. Thank you for that. Now, before we go, the Queen is also marking World Health Day with a video tribute praising the vitally important role that health workers are playing at this moment. In a statement, she said their dedication is an example to us all. I couldn't agree more. All around the world, these are the people on the front line and we owe them an enormous debt of gratitude from me and all of us. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.